0: Good afternoon, I'm Graham Dozier, Publications Managing Editor here at the museum and I welcome you to your Virginia Museum of History and Culture. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan Nation that inhabited the land where this museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and maintain thoughtful relationships WITH THOSE INDIGENOUS PEOPLE AND ALL THE TRIBES OF VIRGINIA. THEIR STORY IS INTEGRAL TO VIRGINIA'S PAST, PRESENT, AND FUTURE. WE ALSO WISH TO ACKNOWLEDGE THE GENEROSITY OF FORMER TRUSTEE ANN Whirl, WHO ENDOWED THIS LECTURE SERIES IN HONOR OF OUR FORMER PRESIDENT AND CEO, DR. CHARLES BRYAN. NOW, WHILE YOU SILENCE ANY ELECTRONIC DEVICES YOU MAY HAVE, I WILL MENTION A COUPLE OF upcoming events. This Saturday, we have two things. It's the last time we can do them this summer, but one is the Neighborhood Nature Walk at 10.30 a.m. aimed at elementary learners. This educator-led program will feature a walk around the block to explore the natural community around the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Each session will include a variety of activities that differ each week from crafts and stories to scavenger hunts and simple science experiments. And also at 1130, we have a highlight tour where you can join members of the VMHC education team as they offer an introduction to the new experiences available and exhibits on display here. Uh, These 30 to 40 minute highlight tours also feature some of your guide's favorite objects. Our next lecture will take place here at noon on September 8th. Historian Terry Alford will be here to deliver a lecture entitled, The Lincolns, the Booths, and the Spirits, Two Families and the Other World in the Civil War. Terry's gonna discuss how two famous families, one of the nation's political, one, excuse me, at the nation's political summit, and one at its theatrical, were bound together in the Civil War period by their fascination with spiritualism. We should have had that for uh, Halloween. <laughs> now, for today's program. In 1788, when two young countrymen asked Thomas Jefferson for advice on where to go on their own journey, he wrote them a long letter entitled Hints to Americans Traveling to, in Europe, instructing them where to go, what to do, and how to bring knowledge from their travels back to newborn America. More than 200 years later, Derek Baxter used this mini guide to embark on a grand tour of his own, following Jefferson's advice through six countries and absorbing countless lessons. Derek's resulting book, In Pursuit of Jefferson, is at once a personal story of a life-changing trip across Europe and a profound personal journey, as well as an unflinching look at one of America's most controversial founding fathers. Derek Baxter graduated from the University of Virginia with a degree in history and is a practicing attorney After years of research, he made nine separate trips abroad on Jefferson's trail. In Pursuit of Jefferson is his first book and will be available, and he'd love to sign it for you after the lecture in the lobby. So please welcome Derek Baxter.
1: Great. Well, thank you, Graham. Thanks, everyone, for coming. so my, this book, it, it's a chan- it was a chance for me to learn about a different side of Thomas Jefferson. When we think of Jefferson, we might think of the younger Jefferson uh, who wrote the Declaration of Independence. He was only 33, or maybe the older Jefferson as president. But his time in Europe in the 1780s, this is this is Jefferson in his 40s. Uh, and I think it was really a time of his life that was just critical for his his career, for everything that followed, and one that's, Maybe not as looked at as much as some of the other periods of his life, and Jefferson almost didn't make it to Europe at all. He had been asked twice before to go and serve as an ambassador, and he had turned down the opportunity each time, uh, primarily because his wife was was always in in, in shaky health. Uh, but a couple of events transpired that really that pushed him out to uh, you know pushed him on the road to take that decision. Some really terrible events. And I'm sad to say that really all of Jefferson's troubles, so to speak, started right here in Richmond. Uh, Jefferson was governor for for two one-year terms. Uh, the first term went fine. You know, Jefferson liked Richmond quite a bit. He was among those who had been pushing for uh, the capital, the state capital, to move from Williamsburg to Richmond, which it did in 1779. And he started his first term. He he was loving life in the original. Uh, governor's building. He uh, you know, looked through his account books to see just what he bought. He, had, he bought chocolate nuts and coffee and tea and squirrel meat, which I found interesting, and oysters over a dozen times and never in a month that ended with R. Uh, but the second term did not go nearly as well uh, because, of course, we were at war. And Jefferson, for all of his talents, he wasn't uh, you know, he wasn't a very successful wartime governor. He didn't have that command personality to, to get the militia out uh and to stay in the field. You know, they wanted to go home and you know they had a lot of obligations, obviously, uh at home. For so for the militia to continue to come out and and, and respond to what, what had proven to be several false alarms uh from, from the British uh was just a major challenge for Jefferson. And in early 1781, as I'm sure many of you know, the British marched into Richmond uh, led by Benedict Arnold. Uh, Jefferson did his best to, to put up maybe a bit of a belated response. He went to Westham to supervise uh, taking you know, the, the arms, the military stores uh, and, and out of there and, and to hide them. Uh, he rode over to Manchester and watched the British enter the city, uh, but it was a disaster. And the government had to relocate to Charlottesville and it was there, just as Jefferson's turn was ending, that the British dragoons charged up Monticello Mountain and came within a few minutes of arresting him, uh, which would have just been a, a tremendous—it would have—it would have been a, a you know a huge problem. Obviously, uh, Jefferson was suffered a lot of political embarrassment. His his enemies attacked him. They they charged him with cowardice. They opened an inquiry. Uh, into his conduct, and Jefferson was just very embittered by all this, and he swore off politics. He said he he would retire to his farm, his field, his family, uh, never to return to the public stage. This was in 1781, so he wasn't there, uh, you know, during our victory at Yorktown. But then the next year, something even worse happened in his life. Uh, his wife Martha died after complications following a very another very difficult childbirth. And he wrote that their their marriage together had been ten years of uncheckered happiness, and he was just in a stupor after she died. He 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 wrote that he was dead to the world, and he even wrote a letter to uh, to a friend hinting at suicide. So here's the Jefferson. He's done with politics. He's now lost his companion. Uh, he's not even as well known as you might think. His his authorship of the Declaration of Independence was not widely known. Uh, the Continental Congress had kept that under wraps because they wanted to make it seem like a consensus document. So he wasn't—he uh, wasn't the Jefferson we know until he—he he got to go to to France. So his friend James Madison recognized the personal problems that Jefferson was going through. Arranged for another, a third appointment. This time Jefferson accepted. He felt like he had nothing left to lose, nothing to keep him here. So he went to France in 1784. Uh, and I think he rediscovered himself. So here's Jefferson, uh, a painting he sat for in Paris. You can tell he's gone French. He's got all the lace and the ruffles. And he just loved, he just fell in love with Paris. He uh, he began to uh, you know go to the intellectual salons. He went to the Louvre. He heard the music. He experienced the food and the wine and the culture and all these things that uh, even in the greatest cities back home, he, he couldn't experience. And he began to travel. At first, in foot, on foot, uh, he just walked around Paris. Uh, one place he kept gravitating to was the Palais Royal, uh, which is which is close to the Louvre. It's it, you can still visit it today. This was uh, it's kind of it was, it was a private area in Paris that the cousin of the king ran, uh, so the French police couldn't go there. So lots of things were going on there. Uh, but you know, you could have more free speech. You could have music and concerts and theater and all sorts of shopping. So Jefferson just thought this was the best place in Paris. And he actually wrote to a friend of his back in Richmond and proposed that, that they do something similar back here. Uh, he, he said that um, uh, he, he, he proposed making an enclosed shopping arcade in Richmond and, and wrote that it would be very, very highly advantageous to the proprietors, convenient to the town, and ornamental. But unfortunately, it didn't go through. That could have been our first shopping mall. <laughs> but um, you know, Jefferson, you know, he you know he did work as an ambassador, uh, obviously. But I think what really he brought away from these five years he spent in Europe were his travels. Uh, so he had three great trips away from Paris, uh, and I'm outlining uh, a couple of them here. Uh, one was to Amsterdam, where he met up with John Adams to uh, to talk to the Dutch bankers to to work on the the loans for the U.S. government. Uh, his longest one was all the way from uh, from Paris down to, uh, to the northern part of Italy and around and back. And then one was also to meet up with John Adams in England, uh, where he was working out uh, some 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 treaties with different countries. And and then he and Adams, you know, when their work was done, went on this tour of gardens. So so he loved uh he loved all these travels and in 1788 uh as graham mentioned at the beginning uh, two young americans approached him and wanted to uh know where to go they were there for you know the great grand tour to to travel throughout europe uh and and who better to ask you know what in terms of what to see than our ambassador uh in europe and jefferson was friends with both of the men's fathers back home so he was more than happy to to give them some ideas, and Jefferson, being Jefferson, kind of the ultimate overachiever, he didn't just give them a couple of names of hotels. He wrote out this entire uh, long letter, which is 5,000 word letter, which really looks like a like a guidebook, and and gave them uh, ideas of places to go and things to do. And it wasn't just a vacation, far from it. You know, Jefferson really thought that uh, these young men should learn ideas that he could they could bring back to america you know both both good things and kind of cautionary tales too um so he wrote out what he called eight objects of attention uh about different subjects so he's really giving them homework and things to look into while they're on the road and so i'm going to test your jefferson knowledge a little bit we have a couple of door prizes here so i'm curious for all of these you know hopefully you can you can see them all here on the screen you know his different subjects agriculture mechanical arts manufactures landscape gardens architecture uh, architecture painting uh, politics and royal courts so of all of these which did jefferson write was worth great attention for an american he really wanted the young men to focus on that so call it out. We'll be on the honor system to see who can, who can figure out which one of these objects was worth great attention. Yes. I, I see a hand. I see a hand up. Um, so that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a map of the travels, similar to the one uh, you just saw on the screen. Uh, this next one, Jefferson you know, told, told the young Americans it would just be too, this 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 would be too expensive for Americans to learn. It would be useless and preposterous to try to learn too much about this. So So just, you know, get a little smattering of knowledge about this. Any takers? Not royal courts. He did want them to learn about royal courts, but... I heard painting and statuary, there we go. Mechanical arts. Uh, he also didn't think was the best use of their time. But actually, interestingly, Jefferson was is famously seen as someone against industrialization. He actually wound up taking quite a few notes on factories in, in, uh, in France and England. He didn't think the time was right for America, but he was quite interested in the science behind all these things. So that brings me to the final, our final challenge. Uh, what object of attention did Jefferson think was worth knowing but only because it would show you the weakest and the worst part of mankind. I think that's almost unanimous. Uh, it's it's royal courts. <laughs> um, I'm going to leave that one to Graham to figure out. <laughs> uh, it was it was, it actually was royal courts. I'm I'm I I think since everybody got there, I'll think of a harder one as we go on. Um, but but as You know, you know, you know. I wound up writing a book about this, but I didn't set out to do that. I set out kind of for a challenge, and you know, I was going, you know, I was going through uh, a bit of soul searching. I was almost forty. I was just about the same age Jefferson was when he went to France. I was also from Virginia. You know, there's, you know, a couple of parallels there. Not to make too much of it, but Jefferson was always somebody I really looked up to. You know growing up here and i just thought this could be really kind of you know as you're going through that midlife crisis and looking for some great challenge what better than to actually fi- follow this guide you know i found the guide on the internet um it wasn't hidden but not much had been written about it or done with it so i started to think about whether uh whether i could just you know pack up and and and, and follow jefferson but one thing that did give me pause coming back to the map, you see, uh, Bordeaux there in the corner with the wine glass. Um, I knew that this was going to be a really key part of the travels. Jefferson wrote on and on about Bordeaux, and I was, as I was thinking to myself, how would I possibly, um, how would I possibly go to Bordeaux? Bordeaux is not a place that you just waltz into and and uh, and go to these wineries that Jefferson did. These are all first growth, you know, uh, wineries. Um, that that don't cater you know to a tourist your average tourist uh so i was kind of thinking that would be the first challenge how would i go follow in jefferson's footsteps what would i find and how would i even do it in a place like bordeaux and so that's when i found out a uh, a way to travel to bordeaux a one fall every year there is a marathon in which all of these wineries open their doors to the public. All you have to do is pay the, the registration fee, and these places that are selling bottles of wine that cost hundreds of dollars each will uh, will let you in. Um, but there were a couple of catches. Uh, one is, as I've already mentioned, it's a marathon that you have to run. And the other is, you need to run in costume. So, uh, so that's what my wife and I did. I decided, this was 10 years ago now, I decided that it was uh this was our way in to to all these chateaus oh and there's one other catch too you drink wine as you run i did forget to mention that so uh we decided this was the way we we're gonna travel in in jefferson's footsteps so i dressed more or less like jefferson uh it did say jefferson on the back of my cape although i'm actually not sure if jefferson wore a cape but um but i'm gonna read you a passage from the book uh some of the book is About half of it is kind of about Jefferson and and the history. About half of it is my own personal travel. So this part's a little bit more on the personal travel. It's about the very end of this marathon, um, which um, uh, we hadn't totally trained for. And and we're trying to keep pace with these three runners called the sweepers. They are running at the slowest pace allowed, which is seven hours. And if you fall behind them, you're out of the race, which we didn't want to do at all. Uh, Because this is really going to be... test run for me this was the kind of my first trip following jefferson i wanted to see if it would work and wanted to see if i could continue and one other thing to mention about this passage i thought a lot on this trip about william short uh i don't know if anybody knows william short anybody okay here's our here's for our final map who is william short new york times ah okay well william short um in the 18th century (laughs) No. Okay. Uh, okay. So William Short was Jefferson was is was from uh, Virginia, and he was Jefferson's private secretary, also a lawyer, um, and he was uh, he was basically Jefferson's assistant back there in Paris while uh, Jefferson was traveling. So here's the here's the reading. By now, the small sips of Bordeaux no longer dull the throbbing in our knees or the blistering on our feet, and even the mild whiny buzz has disappeared. Ale Liana call out the spectators who look concerned. Her name is on her running bib, but I wonder why she's garnering such attention. And then I see that she's as bright red as a nice Cabernet Sauvignon. Despite all the pageantry and wine, it's still a marathon, our first. And doubts about this whole expedition creep in. How would it bode for any plans of following hints to Americans if we fail on this inaugural leg? We walk briskly. I know we're north of six hours into the race, closing in on the seven hour limit. A tent with the flag proclaiming kilometer 38 is a welcome sight. We're on the home stretch and it's time for the most famous stop on the journey, a table piled high with heaps of mottled oysters. A man with a proud white mustache and sun-browned arms shucks them at a snail's pace. I drink white sotern poured from a plastic water bottle. It tastes different from everything we've had before, tropical like lychee and passion fruit. Jefferson loved the sweet wine so much that he would order it his whole life, sending bottles to George Washington as a present. The lush Soterran almost puts me in a trance. If only I could lie down, stop running, and drink some more, preferably listening to sitar music. I reached my hand out for seconds. Liana shouts to me from the edge of the tent. I can't hear her, but manage a Gallic shrug, smile weakly, and take another swig. Liana looks upset as if she had eaten a bad oyster and points dramatically at a hill as if to say "Jacques." <laughs> I follow her finger high, cresting a distant hilltop, a hundred meters ahead of us, run the three sweepers. Behind them, a gaggle of runners practically cling to the trio's capes, begging for penance. The sweepers and their acolytes disappear over the hill, crushing the juice from our dreams. We're about to be placed in a van and hauled back to the starting line my hints test run of failure. On Monday, I'll be back on the commuter train getting to work by nine for another week of sameness. Just like those Bordeaux wines, I'll be confined in a classification that's impossible to break out of. My mind flashes to Jefferson. Am I really gonna be leaving him so soon? I think about William Short and the advice he sought from his mentor. He too traveled to Bordeaux with a troubled mind torn about his own future. Should he remain in Paris long-term or follow his dream of running for office back home? He was afraid that if he chose wrong, he'd have to resign himself to a life he hadn't wanted. Consider carefully, Jefferson counseled in a return letter. He would be sorry to lose short as his secretary, but the young man had to find his own path to durable happiness. It won't be easy. It will certainly involve hard work. This is not a world in which heaven rains riches into any hand that will open itself, Jefferson wrote. Whichever of these courses you adopt, delay is loss of time. The sooner the race is begun, the sooner the prize will be obtained. Merle, I feel an almost electric jolt course through me. I'm not ready to abandon this race, this prize, this pursuit of happiness. Without a word, Liana and I rush forward, revolutionaries storming the barricades. We put pain out of mind. We charge up the hill, sweeping past the sweepers. On a runner's high, blisters and heat forgotten, we clock our fastest kilometer as the Grand Gironde River comes into sight. My cape flies crisp in the wind, our hearts pound in unison, our minds drag our exhausted bodies behind them. Ale, Liana, she is purple like Merlot and determined. Loud French music blares, people clap, the clock ticks hours. We cross the line holding hands. We finish the marathon, and now the hard journey begins. So that original that test run, you know, it was a success. We did finish the marathon. We had a great time. We learned all about Jefferson. We decided this is this is going to be a great thing. We're going to continue following Jeff, in Jefferson's footsteps. I wound up not doing it all at once. I broke his trip into segments did about a trip a year for eight years. I was trying to investigate one of those objects of attention each time. So, okay, I'm gonna try again. I'm, I'm not giving up yet. Does anybody, any any takers on which city in Europe this might be? Yes. Yeah. Okay, I saw your hand. So here's, here's our map. That is Amsterdam. And that is where Hints to Americans begins. Uh, and I thought this was a good place for, uh, for me to learn about how to travel like Jefferson, because he put a lot of practical travel hints in that guide he wrote. And so what, what he wrote was the first thing to do if you're traveling to a place you've never been before, to, to a, a town or city, is to buy a map and a guidebook, which makes sense. But this, as I said, this is the days of the grand tour. So the tourism industry had just started really that, that century uh, in Europe. And there was a lot of this practical information out there the next thing Jefferson said to do was to go to the highest point in a city. So he liked this, it's, uh, to look down and kind of get a spatial view and get your bearings, kind of like looking at a Google Earth satellite photo today. Uh, and then Jefferson wrote, and actually he wrote this in a letter to, to Lafayette, what he liked to do was to quote unquote, gulp down culture. So he would spend an entire day and he'd go out there and he'd see the sights, and he wrote, uh, he wrote to these young men following his advice, it's important to uh, you know it's almost carpe diem. It's important to see what you really want to see. Because remember, you might never come back this way again. So you, you don't want to leave with regrets. But on the other hand, you can't go overboard. He said it, it burdens your mind if you if you would go to a museum and try to see every single object in there. So you do have to find some kind of balance. And once you've gulped down your culture, Jefferson recommended trying to get out there and meet the actual people who lived in the place. So he gave gave the travelers a couple of ideas and one of which was to go to markets. He thought going to a public market was a perfect place to see the inhabitants from high to low, maybe bargain, buy something from them and actually talk to people about what their lives were like. Um, And I think my my final piece of advice that he put in this guy too, that I like to, quite a bit was essentially to drink local. He uh, he didn't use that term, but he did say, when you go to a tavern, don't try to drink some anything imported. It's just gonna be marked up and adulterated. Drink what everybody else is having. So I think that's great advice. Um, so so we took a number of these trips, sometimes with my wife, sometimes even with my my kids who started off pretty small on this trip. Uh, this was not one of our most popular trips for, for all of my kids anyway. This was in the English Gardens uh, tour. We went to all 19 gardens, landscape gardens that Jefferson visited there. This is Stowehouse. House. Uh, and um, there was a lot of landscape gardens. Um, but uh, Jefferson thought landscape gardening was a real art. And this was a much bigger deal, I think, in the 18th century even than even today. And Jefferson thought that this was a great, uh, a great cultural art that Americans should, uh, you know, should explore. We had so much nature. He wrote that all you have to do is cut the super abundant plants out, and you've got a, a garden. You know, I think it is more complicated than that. But he did come away from England with a real sense of of, of the English garden and of how they played uh, with with sight lines and how they put follies there. And he took a lot of ideas back to Monticello, which is just an amazing place if you haven't visited or haven't visited lately to to see the the gardens uh and to see the view he had uh looking west oops well we have a little technical difficulty here okay um a, a much more popular trip for certainly for my kids was uh, was our one to italy so jefferson wrote when he went to italy that he was on a continued feast uh and he was looking for both food for for the table and also crops that he could bring back home uh jefferson wound up uh he actually asked the young men when they were following his guide to pick him up a macaroni maker when they went back to italy and they did get one uh, uh near naples and so here here we are. Here I am with my kids uh, visiting an artisanal pasta factory uh, in 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 Gragnano, Italy. Uh, so Jefferson, he wasn't necessarily the first person to bring pasta to America, but he was certainly one of the first to popularize it. Guests in the president's house wrote that they had never had this dish before. One guest thought he was eating elongated onions. Um, so he also, interestingly enough, uh, he broke some laws in Italy. So he uh he was very interested in the rice of the piedmont in northwestern italy and he saw kind of a, a commercial aspect to that because, to this because he realized that the rice grown in the carolinas wasn't selling as well in france as italian rice was so he, he wanted to get to the bottom of this was it a different variety was it processed differently that was his justification for going to, to italy in the first place so he, he went to uh the piedmont he found it was a different variety and wanted to bring some back home. And that's where he found out that it was against the law to export rice that hadn't been processed. They wanted to protect this secret. And not only that, but the penalty for breaking this law was the death penalty. But Jefferson was not deterred. He uh, he stuffed his pockets full of this rice and he he gave the, the, the person with the mule some more and they made it over the Alps. Obviously a spoiler alert, he was not uh, executed for exporting this rice. Um, and he sent it to South Carolina, and he got a, a letter back. Thanks, but no thanks. Please don't send us anymore. It's you know we prefer our own better. So, so that didn't work out. Um, uh, and of course, Jefferson was was fascinated by science, and he loved the practical side of science. He he wrote that science never appears so beautiful as when it applied to the uses of human life. So one thing that he was very focused on in Europe was uh, learning about. Fisheries and the whaling industry, because he was trying to promote those industries uh, while he was there. And so there I am in a, in a fish uh, auction house in Brittany, learning about that. And of course, we talked about architecture. Uh, this was Jefferson's favorite building. I think that he saw outside of Paris. He wrote that he was violently smitten by it. That he would he would he would stare at it all day like a like a lover at his mistress. And this was the, the Maison Carrée, which is in Nîmes in Provence, the, an old Roman temple that's that's still there today. And it may look familiar, I hope it does, because Jefferson, as I, I'm sure many people in this room know, used it uh, as his model for the state capital, uh, but he changed it. Uh, Jefferson had been quite a, qu- an excellent amateur architect before he, he ever went to Europe, but he was working off on books, from books from Palladio's books, and you know everything was just uh, more academic. And now he actually got well. First of all, he got a lot more resources in Paris because he saw you know drawings of the Maison Carrée in Paris. But he got to go out and see some of these places in, per, in in person, and he got to adapt his architecture. He wasn't just copying stuff anymore. So when he took the design from the Maison Carrée, uh, he changed it. Uh, he 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 reduced the rows of columns from three to, to only two. Here in Richmond, so more light could come in, because he knew this was going to be a working uh, capital building, and he uh, he changed he changed it from uh, from stone to brick covered in stucco. He thought that would be easier to build. He changed the column style from Corinthian to Ionic, um, and instead of having. A statue of a roman god he swapped out one of george washington so you know he he found his way and he doubled the size of the building so he was he was ta- he was taking all these ideas from europe but he was certainly changing them and one uh place that he certainly got ideas with and, and and changed that changed his architecture was for his own house so monticello there was already a version of monticello standing before jefferson went to europe but it, it looks nothing like the one we know it had no dome for one thing uh it had it was kind of boxy it had two floors with, a, with 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 porticos on each uh instead this building as which you can probably tell you know you can see the resemblance to monticello uh this was a private residence the hotel de salm and it happened to be it was under construction almost the same exact time that jefferson lived in europe was the time that this building was built and jefferson wrote that he would, he would go from his home on the, on the Champs-Élysées and go down to the Tuileries garden and sit up in a lawn chair and just watch it being built all day long. And he would come home, he wrote, with, with, with a neck ache from straining across the Seine to see this building going up. And this French neoclassical style of architecture gave him a lot of ideas that he would bring back to Monticello and some of his other buildings to have a skylight for one thing and to figure out architecturally how he could have a dome built. and. Also, the, the real the rage in Paris for, for mansions was not was to not to be too ostentatious. Uh, you know, he wanted he wanted things to they wanted things to look a little more modest, a little more simple. So Jefferson picked up some techniques to show that to, to make Monticello seem as if it's just one story. It's really three, but he hid the third story behind a balustrade. So you can't quite tell it's a third story. And he put the second floor windows very low to the ground so they they look as if they're part of the first floor. So he picked up all these tricks. He also learned all about building materials. Here I am on the the top of a a mountain in Carrara, Italy. This is where some of the finest marble in the world comes from. It's where Michelangelo got his marble. Jefferson commissioned a marble chimney piece for Monticello uh, from Carrara. Uh, but he would only use, you know, built touches like that. You know, it was very expensive to get Carrara marble. He would only use that uh, just for touches on his building. Uh, when he came home, Jefferson, Jefferson revolutionized his own architectural style. So he, he realized he couldn't use marble that much. Instead, you know, the signature element became brick, which we certainly have a lot of red clay here in Virginia. Uh, he drew from the buildings he saw in Provence and Italy and Paris kind of mixed them all up. And he was a confident enough builder and designer to 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 make them into something new, which is obviously just had a huge effect on our own architecture. So it was a great learning experience. It was a whole lot of fun, I think, for all of us uh, on these trips to learn about these subjects. I knew almost nothing about architecture before I went on this trip and learned all this through Jefferson's eyes. But one subject, which I I hadn't hadn't necessarily counted on being such a such a big part ultimately of, of the trip and the book uh was that of slavery. So I knew obviously Jefferson was a slave owner it was something you know that that bothered me uh but I didn't think it would necessarily fit into you know figure into the travels so much uh it happened on these trips that he took outside of paris he he was traveling uh without any enslaved valets who's traveling alone. Uh but slavery was such a part of his life. This is an advertisement Uh, from the Virginia Gazette in 1769 that Jefferson placed for uh, an enslaved person, Sandy, who who ran away. Um, And this document is actually housed here. Uh, It's courtesy of this museum. Uh, And this is a a photo of Isaac Granger, an enslaved blacksmith and, and tinsmith at Monticello. As I as I researched more, I was I was going very granular into Jefferson's account books day to day and learning about all these projects. And it just dawned on me more and more that everything he was doing was intertwined with the institution of slavery. So all of these projects I, I've, I've been telling you about, his ideas for landscape gardening, for architecture, for new crops to be planted. Well, of course, it wasn't Jefferson doing the hard work, the manual labor. It was the enslaved people at Monticello and his other plantations. Uh, the the money you know these these trips were not cheap uh he depended not just on his diplomatic salary but primarily on the tobacco the money from tobacco that he got from his plantations uh and i i found it you know just just very sad kind of looking at with such joy at all these different trips he had to to learn that in in january of 1785 jefferson actually authorized the sale of 31 uh people uh to help pay for his debts so right in the midst of all these trips uh uh, he was selling people, so it's 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 a difficult subject. It's one that 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 we obviously have to reckon with and, and face as part of our history. And 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 what I did eventually was to not just focus on Jefferson's trips, but to try to learn something about some of the other uh, some of the other people who lived on the mountain, uh, uh, including a, a gentleman named Robert Hemings. Robert Hemings was an enslaved uh, manservant and valet to Jefferson. He was with Jefferson. He he was he was the only person who went with Jefferson uh in 1776 to Philadelphia when, when he wrote the De- uh, Declaration of Independence. He was living there. Uh and Robert Hemings was instrumental. He would go, he would accompany Jefferson on just about all of his trips, although not on this one to France. He uh instead uh his younger brother James uh went and then of course uh Sally Hemings later uh went in 1787. Um Robert Hemings was one of the few people who obtained freedom—one of ten people uh, out of the 600 uh, people that Jefferson owned—who managed to obtain his freedom, and he—he uh, he was working for wages. He was able to hire himself out. He had certain special privileges. He eventually came to an arrangement with a a doctor uh, that to that the doctor would pay Jefferson for Robert Hemings's. A purchase price, and then Hemings would work off the rest of of the price, which he did, and he became a free man here in Richmond. He lived on Seventh and Grace Streets. Uh, he had uh, a half acre lot. He became he had been an enslaved valet and had met you know seen Jefferson, Washington, all of the luminaries of the day. But he didn't want to be a servant anymore. Instead, he ran a kind of a small uh, business, a fruit stand. You know, he wanted to be his own man, and he was so. I really uh, I really found a lot of value in learning about stories like that and also about this gentleman, uh, Peter Fawcett, who was uh, not one of the people freed uh, by Jefferson. His father was. His father was in the Hemings family. Uh, but he was not freed. And after Jefferson's death, 130 people were auctioned off uh, on Monticello's West Lawn, including Peter, who was only 11 at the time. He was sold to a, a new master who was particularly cruel, who whipped him forbade him to read to read uh eventually his father who was a blacksmith uh managed to, to take his own money and get money from friends uh and peter eventually they were able to eventually buy peter's freedom he moved to ohio uh became a pastor uh ran a successful catering business and worked on the underground railroad and in 1900 he returned to virginia uh the Levy family uh prominent jewish family uh owned monticello because uh, they bought it uh, because of their admiration for Jefferson and his commitment to religious freedom, and they welcomed Peter Fawcett uh, as an old man uh, through the doors, through the front doors of Monticello, the very place that he had been sold uh, from many years earlier. Uh, so, all of these, you know, there were there were many difficult things to learn, you know, along the way. I certainly saw Jefferson in a new light by the end of my journey, but I also came to appreciate many things about him, including, as I just mentioned his commitment to religious freedom and learning about science. Uh, and it was such an experience to go on this trip, on these trips and to go to some of these out of the way places. So for everything, for all of his, his brilliance, but also his flaws, um, I certainly came to understand Jefferson and to, if nothing else, he certainly was a great writer of, of Travel Hints. So with that, I'm happy to stop and take any questions you may have. did Thomas Jefferson learn to speak French well that that is a good question so uh he didn't speak French well so he he read French very well and he wrote it pretty well but he never he was never fully fluent uh in spoken French um and he was quite frustrated when his 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 daughter uh Patsy came over and was enrolled he enrolled her in a school in a Catholic school actually uh and she picked French up right away uh, and 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 you know Jefferson, he went over a little later in life. He probably hadn't had a real chance to to actually you know practice his spoken French, so he never was he never was great at, at at spoken French. But he he read widely in French and many other languages. I I vaguely remember
0: in reading a biography of Jefferson that. Well, he was in paris he fell out of his carriage or next to his carriage and had a compound fracture of his wrist but i think i also remember reading that he didn't get any medical attention for it and this wrist bothered him for the rest of his life is is, is that right
1: well you're yes yes uh that all everything is right except the it's it's murky just how he fell so Jefferson had an affair. We know it's 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 connected to this affair somehow. He had an affair with Maria Cosway, who was an Italian English half Italian half English woman, who uh, was married to an English painter, uh, and he uh, he met her in 1786. Uh, Jefferson, of course, was a widower at this time, and they began to uh, travel all around Paris and. You know, they they saw the sites, they both were in love with all the art and architecture and apparently each other. And there was some event which Jefferson never really wants to spell out exactly what happened. Did he? But he said he wrote later, it was one of those uh, misadventures that nothing good can come of. It sounded like maybe he was trying to jump over a hedge to impress her. Maybe he fell off a horse, but he broke his wrist and it, it, it did not set well. Uh, it was painful for the rest of his life. So that actually was was one of the pretexts, one of the reasons for his long trip that I showed on the slide earlier. Uh, the destination was Aix-en-Provence in the south of France, which is famous for these hot springs, which you can still go to today. So that was that was that was his idea. He had really wanted to go before. He had already planned it out. But that was that was his 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 purpose was to go there and see if the hot water could improve his wrist. It didn't. He tried it for a couple of days. Jefferson got bored, as you probably would imagine. He's just gonna sit around a spa all day. So he abandoned his treatment after just a couple of days and just continued traveling around. But yeah, it was was a problem his entire life. Um, One other thing, one other tidbit is he eventually, uh, he had fashioned for him, uh, no doubt by enslaved workers, uh, two little dumbbells, two five pound dumbbells to I think strengthen his wrists. So uh, that's something that you can still see today.
0: Did uh, Jefferson ever get to North Africa, and did his travels ever uh, affect the way he later dealt with the Barbary Barbary pirates?
1: Yeah, the great question. No, he, he didn't get to North Africa. Um, he uh, he he traveled to France, to Italy, to uh, the Netherlands. I'm using the, the modern terms. Not all of these countries obviously were were called that at the time, and and England uh but he did have a lot of dealings particularly with the kingdom of morocco so that was one of the reasons he went to england to meet up with john adams uh it was also to negotiate with the the british which didn't go well he was presented at the court of saint james uh to king george iii who apparently it was a little too soon and king george turned his back on him uh so they were the americans were humiliated and and kind of angry by that by that visit but they also negotiated off-site uh with the uh the moroccan leader and john adams apparently was smoking a hookah and uh they eventually they eventually did reach a treaty actually our treaty with with morocco i think is the old maybe the oldest uh one of the oldest treaties in existence and you can still see in tangier uh the american legation there has some has some displays on that but jefferson never made it there himself but but yes as you point out he did uh he did have a very aggressive response against the Barbary pirates when he was president.
0: So I believe when uh, Jefferson was coming back to America, he returned via Norfolk and he brought back more than a couple of suitcases. Did you have a chance to look into anything about what he brought back or how that came to be?
1: Sure, he came. you're absolutely right. He came back to Norfolk. He had, I think about 80 trunks with him and that was only half of his stuff. He left the other half in Paris. So he had thought he would come back for, six months a year real the real reason was he wanted to come back and get his affairs in order and maybe bring his daughters back to s- have them stay in school here uh, his two teenage daughters uh but he wanted to kind of make arrangements with his creditors look over his plantations then he-, he had every intent of going back to uh to paris uh so that's why he left so much stuff um he had all sorts of things he had a pear tree he had Ah, uh, bottles and bottles of white Bordeaux. You know everything for his immediate use that he thought he would need. Um, he arrived in Norfolk, and the ship immediately caught fire before anything could be unloaded. And he he must have had this fear of and of all of this, these goods being destroyed. And they weren't. They were managed to put it out. Um, and then he slowly made his way back. And he stopped here in Richmond on the way home. Uh, and he wrote back to William Short, his private secretary, uh, that Richmond has one street which can compare as, you know, as, as handsomely as a street in Europe, which was broad street, um, maybe a backhanded compliment, but at least take it, take it for broad street.
0: Did, when you were doing your travels, if people found out why you were doing them and everything, did you have any interesting comments, uh, hear any interesting comments, from the Europeans about what they thought about what you were doing and what they thought about Jefferson?
1: Yeah, that is a good question. I met, um, I met, I remember meeting an English woman who told me that Jefferson was her favorite president, which kind of surprised me. I didn't know they had favorite presidents over there, uh, but why not? But in France particular, you know, there is a connection to, to Jefferson. Um, there are even historical markers at some of the places that Jefferson went. So I talked to a few people that really did appreciate it and thought this is this was like a, a great connection. There's there's even a group in France that plants pecan trees across France at some kind of historic places of significance that either maybe Jefferson went to or Lafayette went to, or things like that. So so he's certainly seen as like a symbol of Franco-American relations, you know, at their best. So so sometimes, so yeah, I got a few comments here and there uh from people um some of the places we went to you know on the guide were, were extremely well-known places like milan and amsterdam but he also sent travelers to some little villages and little out of the way places so that you know people would have no idea that jefferson was there and i think i really love those places the best if you're just in a small little village in the alps or wherever uh knowing that you know this was on this guide you know that he had set out uh i just i just i just love those connections
0: you mentioned politics and science. Do you know if Jefferson
1: ever got together in Europe with Benjamin Franklin? Sure. So uh, so Franklin was still uh, our, our, our main ambassador there uh, in Paris when Jefferson showed up. So Jefferson's first assignment actually was to be the commercial uh, minister. And it was kind of a dream team that the three ambassadors were Franklin, John Adams, and Jefferson. I mean, it was quite, I don't think we've ever had that diplomatic. You know, star power again. Uh, so, so he overlapped with, with Franklin, and uh, there was a famous comment when you know Franklin left not that long afterwards. You know, after the first year or so, Jefferson was there, and I think a Frenchman said to Jefferson, "Oh, you know, you're you're Monsieur Franklin's, uh, you're his." his uh his replacement he said no i can't replace him all i can do is follow him you know so, something along those lines franklin was the ultimate celebrity uh as you may know in paris um, but jefferson did engage a lot with with the french uh scientists uh of the day uh many of which had these same kind of enlightenment ideals more kind of you know liberal ideas in terms of pushing against the monarchy in france uh he met with people like the mathematician Condorcet, uh and uh an agronomist he he, he was uh, a botanist he, he was part of this network that he would continue even when he returned home uh particularly in natural history and plants he would still exchange seeds uh with some of these french friends um for years to come and exchange news back and forth uh so he was really kind of part of that enlightenment uh enlightenment group and paris was the center of it at the time
0: Out so of curiosity, I had always associated Franklin with London and thought he had lived there for many years. Was that around the same time that Jefferson was over there or not?
1: So so that was earlier. Yes, Franklin did live in London for many years, and you can still see his house there uh in London. Uh, but he returned home and he went over uh in i think it was late 1776 to uh to france so he was instrumental in making the connections uh during the revolution and and helping uh helping encourage the french to uh to sign a treaty of alliance with the americans i mean the french had their own reasons for doing it anyway but franklin really became this celebrity uh and and he he played it up you know he played the role of the homespun american you know with his you know, his his, his plain clothes. He he purposely kind of dressed down and, you know, came out with his sayings. He spoke terrible French, by the way, much worse than Jefferson's, but they just thought he was even more brilliant because he just sit there listening the whole time and he'd say one sentence at the dinner and everyone would hang on his every word. So Franklin was just the star of Paris and he certainly kind of greased the way for, for Jefferson by the time Jefferson made it over there. i read quite a bit about jefferson years ago so my memory's pretty foggy but i know he tried uh desperately to establish uh a winery or i mean the wine industry uh at Monticello in virginia with not a lot of success did he bring back rootstock or from from those early trips yes yeah yeah great question um uh he brought back he first of all he even had in his in in paris he had I think three quarters of an acre behind his mansion so he tried to grow grapes right there he got he got a bunch of cuttings in germany and he planted them right there in paris um and he definitely tried in monticello so i get into this in the book. So the way i kind of group it as i said kind of each trip was a different subject so i have a whole subject on wine which was definitely a subject i loved uh learning about um and it failed his his, his you know he the, the wine didn't take off uh at monticello for several reasons, one which he couldn't have known about uh, was the phylloxera louse. So it's a louse, a pest that attack that American uh, native grapes have resistance to, but European ones don't. Uh, so it kills. It killed. It, it would suck the, the sap out of the rootstock. So so no European grape of uh, uh, you know grapevine could could really survive here. There are probably a lot of other reasons, other challenges too. Um, but that was the main thing. But nonetheless, Jefferson is often seen as the father of, you know, American viticulture, uh, just because he he was so into wine. You know, he served it at the president's house. Uh, I love it when James Monroe was elected president. Jefferson wrote a several-page letter, and he kind of congratulated him. He had like a sentence or two, and then all the rest of the advice was about wine. He was telling Monroe every kind of wine he should serve and the good wines and where you can get some cheaper wines too. And that's basically all the advice that he thought uh, President Monroe needed to know. So, uh, you know, he was, he was such a wine lover. Um, that's carried on. They grow grapes at Monticello today. They have uh, their amazing vineyards very close to, to Monticello. So, um, so, he's certainly seen as kind of the, uh, you know, as having inspired that, even if he didn't succeed himself.
0: Uh, you know John Adam friend enemy and then friend at the end did he say anything about him
1: yeah uh you, you're right Adams I think Adams and Jefferson that they they met during the Continental Congress in Philadelphia um somewhat kind of allies at the time they really formed a very fast friendship uh there early on uh in, in Europe in Paris in London when he visited Uh, not just with John, but with Abigail Adams too, uh, and with the Adams children. Uh, I think uh, either John Adams or Abigail Adams wrote later that John Quincy Adams, their son, seemed almost as much of a son of Jefferson as as their own. They spent so much time and uh, they were very close. And Jefferson really relied on Adams. He was uh, a number of years older than him. He was the more experienced uh, diplomat, more experienced politician. Adams knew money, which Jefferson didn't. So Jefferson was really at a loss. I mentioned Jefferson went to Amsterdam to try to fix the loans. The the Dutch bankers were calling in the debts. Um, Jefferson didn't know anything about this. And and he was was so relieved that Adams was able to come over from London and help him out and sort all that out. But of course their relationship soured uh, greatly during the 1790s. Uh, By the time Adams became president, um, Jefferson called it the Reign of Witches when, when he passed the Alien and Sedition Acts. Uh, you know, he was just completely opposed to everything. And, you know, we now actually see Adams was a bit of a moderating force even in his own cabinet, but not all that was known at the time. There was a lot of mistrust uh, between the parties and their relationship uh, obviously deteriorated to the, to, the, to, to the point where, you know, Adams very famously got out of town before Jefferson was inaugurated. He got on the 4 a.m. stagecoach back to Massachusetts and never came back. So he wasn't there, which... um, So, you know, the the relationship was was not good, but eventually through Benjamin Rush, they did begin writing uh, to each other again as in their older age. And it's one of the most, you know, amazing sets of correspondence, I think, in our history. They wrote, they didn't write much about politics. They decided to agree to disagree about that, but about everything else, they found common ground. And they wrote about the old days together and they wrote about science and, uh just about just about everything so it's an amazing set of correspondence
0: uh you on the map that you showed at the first there was a uh area called johannesburg what was that in prussia at the time or in one of the other like alsace lorraine or others but and what what town would that be today our area
1: so it is near rudisheim it is in the 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 rhine valley uh it's it's really it's it's not that big, um, but it's a it's it's a, a winery that's still open today. So I write about it a little bit in the book. This is where the the wine Riesling comes from. This is kind of its homeland. And Jefferson went there. That's where he discovered Riesling. Uh, it was kind of uh, it was a nice moment for Jefferson. Germany was a bit of a challenge. German was like one of the only languages that seemed like he he didn't speak or read. So he got lost a lot. He had all sorts of problems in Germany. Uh, but that, I think, was his favorite, probably going to that winery. So, so that's why we included it there. He loved boating down the Rhine, too. He, he, he went in his carriage for part of the way and boated down the Rhine a little bit. And that was one piece of advice he gave to travelers. Next time, just take the boat the whole way. You won't regret it.
0: Besides your book, uh, are there any other resources or guidebooks or uh, things you could look
1: at to follow Jefferson's footsteps in Paris. Ah, okay. Um, there had, uh, yeah. In, in my book, I certainly set out uh, set out a few things. Occasionally, I do have end notes where occasionally I'll mention, you know, this building is still there, type thing. Um, there have been a couple of news articles over the years where you can find that too. I also have uh, a website. It's not surprisingly, it's jeffersontravels.com. So I've got a little bit more practical information. Um, I've already set out some about like how to do my trip, because I've gotten a lot of questions. My wife and I sometimes get questions from people. You know, How do we do what you're doing? And like literally, we want to do exactly what you did. Where did you stay and what did you do? Uh, so I put that down for Amsterdam. And uh, I plan to do the same for Paris. So um, Or you know, you can also go to my website where you can sign up for a newsletter. Uh, just include that in, in the comments, and I'll just I'll email you back if you have any particular questions, happy to do so. One last
0: question. Did Jefferson ever study Latin? Because because if you've had Latin, German ought to uh, be a little easier. So it surprises me that he couldn't get the German, because they all declined.
1: Yes, he did say he he was quite good at Latin. he even uh he even even eventually uh translated the bible and and used used latin versions he could read it in latin uh you know he take this translation of the bible and and kind of look through it for what he thought were jesus's moral lessons um so he, he he read the classics in latin uh yeah why jefferson couldn't get around in german i don't know he uh he was even trying to find I guess to get really meta jefferson would also sometimes go on his own historical trip so he was trying to find the site of an old roman battlefield in germany and he was also trying to find where hannibal crossed the alps uh so i was following in jefferson's footsteps he was also following in hannibal's footsteps but that got a little complicated but um so no he wasn't he wasn't that was one of his uh shortcomings but jefferson did buy all sorts of dictionaries and guidebooks Uh, He brought them back home. Of course, he eventually sold his collection to the Library of Congress. Uh, Some of these were burned in a fire at the Library of Congress. Unfortunately, the travel part of his books were all burned, uh, just about, I'm sad to say. But a lot of the other books he bought in Paris uh, are still there today. Uh, So I think that's another kind of interesting connection we can make with Jefferson. Okay.